0: welcome to this episode of Tea with Twiggy. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast where I catch up with friends and people that I find fascinating. I check that they're doing okay and ask for tips to help us stay at home more comfortable. I'm very excited because my guest this week is the gorgeous Selene Henry. He's a writer, an actor, a comedian, and his work stretches from Shakespeare to big arena tours, television, film. He's done everything. And he's my friend. Lenny, hello. Hello,
1: Twigs. Look at you. Oh, How lovely.
0: You. Oh, thank you. It's so lovely of you to join me for virtual tea. Have you got a cup of tea? I've got, I've got English breakfast this morning.
1: Um, I've just got a very tiny one because I just thought it, it might be nice to be
0: <laughs> People be, can't see this. He's got the smallest cup of tea I've ever seen. Oh, it's terribly dainty, Lenny. Are you uh, a tea drinker or not?
1: I like tea, but there's a lot of caffeine in it. So I'm trying to find oh, yeah. alternatives. So I, I go through all the herbals. I go through um, nettles, um, chamomile, just branches from any old tree, <laughs> um, grass. I've been trying lots of different herbal alternatives. and. Um, I do like rose hip and I do whatever sleepy time's made of, I'll have that in bucket loads. I don't
0: think I've ever had sleepy time.
1: Do you remember there was a thing called Red Zinger that used to kind of it was literally the equivalent of being out with George Best for a whole night <laughs> and inhaling the entire room? It was ridiculous. That's Red so, Zinger. Yeah. Organic crack cocaine.
0: So how have you been through this absolute madness we're going through?
1: It's been challenging. Mm-hmm. Um because we we I'm I'm a, a person of a certain age now, so I've had to shield at home for over twelve was like nearly sixteen weeks now. Join
0: the club, yeah. And it's been
1: really um tough. But typical me and typical us, I've been working, so I've been writing,
0: Good.
1: um, I've been adapting something for television and I've also got an idea for a, a, a television thing about my mum. I've done a radio show for Radio Four and um, I'm setting up a new website. Um because I, I the, the websites I've done before have always been hilarious because I start off with every good intention in the world, and then about a month in, I go. <laughs> Who's got now, time can, for this? I've got cakes you, to eat.
0: Can you can you do the website yourself, or do you have to get help? Because I I'm I'm actually becoming quite technical doing this podcast, and I'm I'm so untechy. You're very
1: you. good. I, I mean, the way you've handled it so far <laughs> 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 has been ingenious. <laughs> Trying one deliverer then another deliverer that was, it's been that, extraordinary that wasn't
0: my fault that was, no, that, no, no, was no. The, that was the whatever you call them
1: <laughs> yes they're extraordinary anyway um I think that's the key I've got a partner now who rings me up and says what do you want to talk about this week and I talk and then we type it up and then we edit it and then we upload it and we're going through okay. this thing where I'm trying to curate all, a lot of my archive stuff via YouTube because oh, a lot of a- it's good really idea. interesting because millennials millennials are hilarious because they they think I'm the guy that does the voices on Big and Small on Tinga Tinga Tales and they've never seen the Lenny Henry show.
0: They haven't.
1: No, so I so I've been I've been collecting me as Tina Turner and me as Michael Jackson and Prince and stuff and uploading it and uh, the response has been very good so far. I
0: hope you're putting on Frank Spencer.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Frank is the very first thing I ever did.
0: I know. And, um, Tell me. I remember it so clearly. And actually, my dear old dad, who's not with us anymore, Norman, who was from Bolton, and he was really straight talk. He's gorgeous, my dad. And I remember when you appeared and he said, that boy's going to go far. He's absolutely <laughs> bloody brilliant. So thank you, Norman. He's not with Thanks, us.
1: Thanks, Norman.
0: <laughs> He'd but be I mean, very look, proud of you.
1: Luckily for luckily for me, that show was seen by sixteen million people, and I, I swear to God, I didn't stop work for ten years after I mean, New Faces. Well, it just went right. on and on and on. And um, you know, I was able to buy my mom a house. I was able to help. I was able to help my family. And um, it was a really because we came from poverty. You know, <laughs> we had a house with a hairline crack down the middle of it. And often we didn't use the front door, we're just going through the hairline crack. (laughs) The house was built on the corner of the street and it was on the street's septic tank. And every summer when it rained, the septic tank would overflow and would be hip deep in the entire street's waste. Oh my Um, God. We used to have council pop, which was just water with sugar in it. And um, we used to have sugar sandwiches. And it was, I know it sounds like I'm going, oh, you were lucky, but actually... My upbringing was extraordinary because I survived it. I don't know about yeah. you, but I grew up in a very. It was very. There was no money. And well, um, I,
0: no, I, I, I mean, I came from a working class background, but my dad had a quite a good job. He was a, a, a set builder in the studios. Was so it? we were never. We weren't rich. We lived in Northwest London in a you know semi-detached house, but we weren't poor. I always had everything I I, I needed. Yeah.
1: Oh, we had. I mean, the thing is, my mom was very proud. So we had clothes, we mm-hmm. had uh, we had food on the table. And what I didn't know was that she was doing. She did more than one job. She made cakes and she made dresses, and she worked in a factory. She also borrowed money so that we could so that we could live. And she, I remember this one time, she came home with all these cakes, and she'd been to the local cake shop. And there were all these cakes that they were going to throw out, and she said, "How old are those cakes?" And the woman said, "Well, they're a day old." She says, "Can I have them?" And she said, "Yes." Oh, bless her! So, mom came on with these cream horns and iced buns and Danish pastries. We thought she'd won the pools, but she just got them. They were a day old.
0: How many? um, How many were you? You you had quite a few. Oh, seven.
1: Yeah, but um, a couple of them were grown ups. But there were there were four of us at home, and one a couple of them had just left home. Mm -hmm. But um, it was really. In our house, there was a lot of laugh- laughter and a lot of noise. And mom was very strict. Dad didn't do the discipline in our house. Mom did the discipline. Um, but in between that, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of physical acts of love. Lots of hugging, mm. lots of smiling, lots of laughing, um, because mom was the funny one. If you if you wanted to have a laugh in our house, mom would tell a story and people would be on the floor laughing.
0: So you got her jeans. You got her funny jeans. I,
1: I think so. I mean, I think she would she would mispronounce words. She'd say she wouldn't say certificate. She'd say surf ticket. Go <laughs> and get your go and get your bird surfit ticket. I want to look at it for a, for a sec. She wouldn't say film, she'd say flim. I want to watch a Jan Wayne flim. Go and get me a bucket of ice. She used to chew ice, ice cubes with just that was a, like like crunch them. That's hysterical. <laughs> she used to eat hot peppers straight from the jar. So the hottest peppers imaginable. She'd sit and watch a John Wayne Flynn and she'd eat the hot peppers from the jar and flames would be coming out of her ears. And we'd be looking at her going, how is she doing that?
0: That's amazing. She was,
1: and she was a great storyteller. She had great powers of description. And um, I would watch her and I'd look at the re- the way everybody else was reacting and I think something in me went, I want that.
0: Oh, I want, so that, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. But she must have been blown away when what happened to you happened.
1: Yeah, she was... Um, she was angry that I went for the audition when I was 15 because I bunked off school. I put on my Sunday school clothes. I had, a, <laughs> I had a, a black and white stripy jumper, black trousers with a crease in them, and black shoes from Clark's. And um, the guy, Mike Hoddis, who was my manager at the time, I was only 15, remember, drove me to the audition at this club in Birmingham. And it was, I mean, it stank. this place. Why did clubs smell during the day? It had a sticky carpet, <laughs> And it stank of wee and fangs. Uh. So you were kind of. So you got through all that. You signed in. Then you went into the, this audition place. It was girls in costumes. There were fire eaters. There were jugglers. There were comedians. There was a dog act. This is where I was enveloped and entranced by the world of showbiz. I'd never seen it before because I don't know about you, but when I, when you grow up in a working class family, mm. you sort of think show business is for them. Show business wasn't for us. And suddenly, I was in it. There's there's a guy eating fire over there. There's a guy with a dog making the dog dance. There's a woman, there's a woman juggling. There's a and there was another black comedian. And there was another black comedian who told terrible jokes. And they just said, next. And then at the end of the day, I got there at 9:30 in the morning. And then at the end of the day, about six o'clock, they called my name. I've been there all day and I'd seen all these people. Next, next. Nobody got through. Next. And then um, I walked on stage and I went, Thank you very much. And they all laughed. And I, I was doing Tommy Cooper, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to try and get it over with because these people down here keep saying next, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't want to be next. I want to be, easy ticket, you're going to be on television. So I'm going to keep it short. And they were laughing and I thought, this is great. And, and I did Dave Allen, you know, I had the finger. Oh, brilliant. The, Good evening. A little Irish fellow walked into a bar. You know, I did all that, and I did Tommy Kipp, I did Max Park. Here's a funny story. I did all these impressions, <laughs> and it and it kept they kept they kept not saying next, and it went on for about ten minutes, and eventually I had to kind of go. Um, anyway, thank you very much for listening, Tara, and I did a weird bow, and I got a standing ovation. My first ever standing ovation, and um, suddenly there were all these. All these people from Birmingham rushing me saying, All right, that was a very good spot, young man. Now, if you want to if you want an agent, here's my card printed out at the station, you know, here's my card, here's my number, all these. And suddenly I was inundated with all these people saying, I want to be your manager, I want to be your agent. But luckily I had my own manager there, Mike Hollis, and he said, Out of the way, he's with me, he's my he's my client, I'm looking after him. And that was my introduction to show business.
0: Amazing. And then
1: when I got home, at about 7.30, mum said, where have you been? You were supposed to be at school. And I said, I went to the audition. What audition? I went to the audition for New Faces. New Faces? Oh, you mean? What did you do? And I said, I did impressions. She said, do them for me now. What? Do the impressions for me now, or you're not going to get chicken rice, dumpling and banana. So I had to stand there in the front doorway doing my entire act for my mum, who stood there with her arms folded watching me. And then after a while, she gave a laugh and she said, all right, you're going go and eat. And she let me in because she knew the world was about to change. And then January the next year, I went on telly and I was seen by 16 million people. And at the end of that performance, I won. And I said, hello to mom live on air. She looked at me cause we were watching it together and she went, all right then. And that was it. That was the beginning of my career. And she never got in my way. She always encouraged me. And um, it was tough though, the first few years. Was it? But very, very tough. I mean, what was it like for you? Because you you started young as well, didn't yeah. you?
0: Yeah, I'd say it's a sim. I mean, it's it's different, but it's kind of similar. You know, I to be a model. You know, models in those days. I'm talking about. I'm you know I'm ten years older than you, so this was mid '60s, and all models came from middle class or posh families, uh-huh. and it's something they you know if they were photographic enough or could do the catwalk, they did that until they got married or whatever. Uh, and so I don't think until that mid sixties period there'd been anyone from working class. Plus, I was tiny; I was a funny little thing with skinny legs, and I was you only you captured
1: the of nation's skin. imagination, didn't you? You captured the, captured the world's imagination.
0: Well, I think it was you know timing and play. I mean, listen, it was as big a shock to me as to anyone else when it happened, because yeah. I would never have tried to do it because in my head. Models didn't come from a working class class background. They didn't look like me.
1: I had exactly the same experience. People on television did not look like me, yeah. and they certainly didn't. They certainly didn't come from the background that I came from. So, the thing of being on television and suddenly people knowing your name—well, you must have had this, Lenny tricky, You must have had that. People shouting at you from across the street. I went to Leicester to do a show, a ten-minute show in a working men's club, and I was crossing the street. And a bus stopped in the middle of the street. The traffic backed up for like 50 yards. And this black guy stuck his head out the window and went, all right, Lenny, Tartu was very good on Saturday. Keep it going. And then he drove off.
0: Amazing. (laughs) And
1: I thought, this is really, this is obviously a big thing.
0: Major. But, you know, isn't it, how many viewers did you say? 14 million
1: 16 million for the 16 first sixteen. I mean, 16 that is million.
0: amazing, isn't it? You, yeah. no, nobody gets that anymore, do they? Because I suppose there's so many channels. There were only
1: three channels back in the day, do you remember?
0: But three also, channels. New, to get on new... I can remember, you know, watching it every week. You know, it was, it was the show you had to watch. So, I mean, to be on that and to be seen by that many people.
1: Yeah. Well, it literally changed my life overnight. And then I did several more shows, and then suddenly I was just Lenny Henry and... I was available for hire and my manager got me work. I did the work in men's clothes, which were awful. Oh gosh. You walk on stage and people would just read or they'd, they'd say deliberately dodgy things while I was on stage. Um, I remember this one guy just sitting there um, just staring at me malevolently. And and I, I, I was very brave, you know, it's weird when you're young, isn't it? I was very brave and I just carried on. But when I got off stage, I was shaking because oh. he was looking at me like he hated me. and. Um, Some of the working men's clubs are funny because they'd say things like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a young lad now, young coloured lad, he's coming on now, and uh, give him a chance. He's not very good. Give him a chance. You've seen him on the telly. (laughs) Give him a chance. His dad works in a factory. He's coming on now. Ladies and gentlemen, young black lad, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Henry, and then I'd walk on stage. And then five minutes in, all the pies would arrive from the factory. (laughs) the guy would walk in with the pies on a tray above his head and put them on the bar and then everybody would just walk to the bar and start (laughs) buying pies and so I'd be on stage and I'd go don't worry I'll wait and then he'd come back with pies and then he'd carry on it was very funny
0: I have to say in in all the aspects of our profession you know whether it's film, telly singing, recording stand-up comedy must be must be the most terrifying of all. I mean, I, don't... I can't imagine getting up because you, you've, you know, what if nobody laughs? What do you exactly?
1: Do- <laughs> well, that's the big thing. And you know what's brilliant about being young and you at this, you you don't know. No, that's true. All you know is minute by minute you're having a great time, or somebody's being a bit mean to you and you react to that, or somebody's being kind to you and you react to that. But the actual thing of doing your job at the time that you really want to do isn't a problem. And I went everywhere, and I, I literally, I was not very good. I died. They call it dying. It. I died everywhere. I went. I'd go to, and usually up north, they just didn't like me up north. And you know, and I didn't know why. And then what I realised was, they didn't respect the television thing. They didn't uh-huh. respect the talent show thing. They wanted me to be like their comedians who had been doing it for years and years and years and knew how to entertain an audience. And I had to learn all of that in the public eye. I had to learn how to structure an act and how to go on stage and entertain an audience for an hour.
0: So actually, looking back, it was brilliant training, right?
1: Oh, yeah. It was really good training. But in the, and there were some sad moments. <laughs> I, remember once, I remember once I came from up north and it was, it was like the mid, it was the Northeast, you know, I was going to say the Middle East. It was the Northeast. And I came home and I was really upset. And mum said, what's the matter? With, what's the matter with you? It wasn't very good. I said, what are you crying for? She said, they don't like me. I don't want to do it today. You wanted to do this. This was your idea. You, you're the one who went on television. She said, go to Wolverhampton, find jokes.
0: What the hell does that mean? Why
1: Wolverhampton? I don't know, but <laughs> I think what she meant was, I used to go and work when I was when I was 15, I used to go to all the discos in the area and I would get up on stage and I'd, I'd mess around. And um, I used to go to the Club Lafayette in Wolverhampton, the Summerhill House Hotel in Kingswinford, the Ship and Rainbow in, in West Bromwich, and I'd get up on stage and I'd do Elvis. Thank you, thank you very much. And I'd do lots of impressions and I'd get a big clap and I'd come off. And what she meant was do what you did that got you into this to cheer yourself up. Don't come here crying. You wanted to do this. Go and do the work. And I really respect my mom for that because she she was hardworking. She was a grafter, you know, two, three jobs, raising all these kids, dealing with all the crap people had to deal with back in the day, racism and stuff. But she, she never let it affect us. And she always stuck up for us. And this was her way of saying to me, you wanted to do this, do the work that gets you through this bit. And so I, d- I did the work.
0: Do you remember when you said your mum facing the racism? Do you, remem- do you remember that? Or did she protect you from that?
1: She was brilliant. She protected us from it. And, oh, I, and so. I only found out I was black when I was six. <laughs> this kid said, you're black at school. And I went, oh, okay. Become oh. more brown, actually. Oh. Let's get a Dulux colour chart and look exactly what colour I am. But um, and then I, I realized there was this other thing that was called prejudice. There was discrimination, and um, you know I was one of I was one of three black kids in the entire school at one point. And then when I went to St John's, I was, oh, there were more black and brown kids there. And then when I went to Blue Coat, there were quite a lot of black kids there because the U- Ugandan Asians had come in in a big influx at that time, and there were just more Caribbean kids. So I experienced racism a lot at school, but got through it, you know, I was bullied at quite a fair bit. So I got called names a lot. And um, there was this one moment where um, there was a period where this kid, let's call him Billy Wilson, cause that was his name. Um, <laughs> he used to call me terrible names. God, every time I came into school, all the racist names you could think of. And he would put his fists up and we'd fight and he'd keep calling me names, hit me, kick me. And I can't fight for, I can't fight at all, I'm terrible. And I'll be like like this, you know. (laughs) And then then one day I just decided to do jokes. This was like a revelationary day. I had a revelation. I started to say, you must really fancy me because we keep rolling around on the floor and hugging each other. Do you want to fight or not, you wog, or whatever he called me. And then I said, you know, why don't you just buy me a ring and take me out to dinner and get it over with? And 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 then after a while, people around me started to laugh at what I was saying to this guy, you know. Ooh, chase me, chase me. You should kiss me now. (laughs) Um, And um, they just started to laugh. And eventually they said, leave him alone. These were the people who 10 minutes ago were going, fight, fight, fight. They said, leave him alone. He's cracking gags. He's funny. Leave him alone. And eventually he did leave me alone. And um, after that, he still said the odd racist thing. But these people started coming to my defense. And I realized that comedy wasn't just a shield. It could be a weapon. You could use jokes to repel invaders, and so that's what I started to do, and that's where I got. You know, I'm quite quick. I got to be quite quick with the comeback.
0: And and do you think that was the beginning? Because I know you, you've, you've done a lot, and you've done your PhD study. Is it BAME, the Black Asian? I don't. I don't
1: really like that. I don't really like that that term. I think. Okay.
0: I I just read it in a in. It's on. It means
1: Black Asian minority ethnic, but. I think that's. But didn't, you do, but
0: didn't you do a PhD in it or something?
1: I did a PhD in film and television and screenwriting.
0: Oh, okay. With,
1: with a side interest in the representation of black, Asian, and minorities in the British TV and film industry. Okay. It sounds like a lot. And, it um,
0: does. I'm very impressed.
1: <laughs> but I, I think if you you've got to, I think you have to define people. Yeah. I think pe- I think people who are black or Asian or travellers or gay or trans or whatever, I think they want to be seen and heard and I think they want to be counted and to do that they want to be defined properly by the people that are addressing them. So this bit, which is what we're going to call ourselves, are we coloured, are we black, are we brown, are we oh, people of colour, are, mm-hmm. we, are we individuals from a specific gender or place or sexuality? people just want to be defined properly before you yes, continue the conversation. But
0: don't you think it's also very, I mean, it's different and it's much bigger, but it's the same as certainly in, in Britain growing up, you know, the class system. I mean, you know, the fact that I grew up never thinking I could be a model because I, I knew I didn't come from the right family. Do you know what I mean? It's that. Yeah,
1: I think this, the, the class system is a major thing in this country. That if you go to the right school or if you went to the right public school or if you know the right people, you can really just fly through a career and come out the other end drinking port and say, well, that was marvelous, wasn't it? But if you're working if you're working class, life is different. It's a it's a real struggle. And I think the main thing people could do is make it more equal for people from a working class background or women or, you know, there's virtually no women on all the big important boards in this country. There's there's very few black people on any boards at all. If you go into any room for a meeting, you will rarely see a brown person or a woman, you know? And it's, it's bad. So that's the thing we're fighting for at the moment. Yeah,
0: I, I think, well, in the last few years with the Me Too movement and what's going on with everything else in the world, I mean, I think people are starting to listen a bit more. Whether and how long it would take to actually change, God only knows.
1: I think in the last few years, certainly from the end of the 90s, there was a big move in the BBC to fast track the best women in the organisation. And now those women run their own companies, they run Mm -hmm. departments at the BBC, they're really up there. So clearly the idea of fast-tracking a group of people works. So you've got to hope that they do that with socially challenged people, people from a working-class background, black people, brown people, you know, people that need it, because they need more people in the upper echelons of these places. Otherwise we're not going to see change. Well,
0: you know, the big, the huge change for you was... When you went from all the brilliant comedy things you've done, your own TV show, and then you suddenly went to the West Yorkshire Playhouse and did Shakespeare, Othello. I mean, were, were you a pro? Did Barry was it Barry Rutter who did? Yeah, directed, we did it. Was that your idea, or did you did he approach you?
1: Well, I was doing a radio show called "What's So Great About?" and we did we did "What's So Great About Bob Dylan," "What's uh-huh. So Great About the Pogues," "What's So Great About Snooker," "What's So Great About Motivational Speakers," "What's So Great About Maths." And then I did, we did this one program called What's So Great About Shakespeare? Um, and because when you're working class, as we've just been talking about, Shakespeare doesn't really fit into the scheme of things. At our, at our school, Ronnie Barton and me read Romeo and Juliet. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art now, Romeo. Tis the light in Juliet. The... It was terrible. And if that doesn't put you off Shakespeare for life, nothing will. <laughs> so, um, and also when you watch Shakespeare on the telly, it was always posh people with a cabbage down their tights, lisping, How fee they thought that Richard Pryor used to go, How fee they thought they fiveth, you know. So, um, Shakespeare, not for us. Were. Although Stratford's just down the road from the Midlands. Stratford's just down the road. So, anyway. Um,
0: Presumably Shakespeare had a Midland accent.
1: Yeah, to be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> so, um, I was doing What's so Great About, and we asked Barry Rutter to come on and talk to us about Shakespeare and why working class people can do it too. Because Barry's from Hull, and he ran his own theatre company called Northern Broadsides. and everybody talked like that. Or well, they were from <laughs> Wales, or Scotland, or Liverpool. And if you're from, you know, Scouser, like, there wasn't nothing wrong with it, you know? A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse! You know, you could do that. And it didn't matter, as long as you could speak the speech, speak in your real voice and give it some passion and some rock and roll. Barry would accept him, Barry loved it. So he said to me, I think you could do Shakespeare, lad, after we did this radio show together, let's do a bit of Othello. And so he came to the BBC and we rehearsed the last speech of Othello for five hours. I've never done anything good for five hours, but they're always rehearsing in the basement of the BBC with Barry Rutter saying, right, you're sitting there, you're making this big speech, there's two dead birds on bed and you're there. You're going to stab yourself in a minute, but we don't know why, we don't know how. There might be a knife somewhere and you're going to say a soft you, a word or two before you go. And we did this big speech. And at the end of the rehearsal, I said, do you think I can really do this Barry? And he said, aye lad, no problem. And that was it. A few months later, I was at the West Yorkshire Playhouse crapping myself about to go on stage for all the critics who the critics were there because they thought it was going to be a car crash.
0: And you got I, you got rave reviews
1: well my mum said I my mum said I was blessed i am blessed because i don't even remember what happened that day all i remember is i took 3 or 4 nurofen before i went on and i just sailed through the whole thing i it was, was going to
0: re- ask you because i when i i mean i didn't i've never done shakespeare and i didn't do, but i did do a big broadway musical and the fear because i didn't think i could ever get up on a a stage let, let let alone a Broadway stage yeah. and but you know you do it I mean some some the adrenaline gets you through we were a massive hit and we ran for nearly two years well, I'm, presuming and the, you, I'm presuming
1: you worked your conkers off
0: I really did I've never worked so hard in my life it was also what I loved about it it was a huge learning experience how you deal with audiences learning to do eight shows a week and keeping your voice in trim. Cause it was, we were singing Gershwin songs, which were gorgeous. Uh-huh. And dancing and just keeping fit apart yeah, from yeah. anything else.
1: I went through, I mean, it was a massively steep learning curve for me doing Shakespeare that they, um, and what I loved about it was teamwork, the camaraderie. I loved the fact that I had to learn how to throw a knife. I had to learn how to do fighting. I had to do the voice work. Mm. I'd speech therapy lessons every day, and I had to learn my lines, and that was very difficult because you know, soft you a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they notes, No more of that. It's it's like it's like Chinese algebra. You have got to really figure it out. Uh, and uh, Barry just said, "The thing about you is you've been a comedian. You've been on your own. You've been the master of your own destiny." He said, with this, <laughs> we're, we've all got your back, Len. We've all got your back, and help you learn your lines. Don't worry about it. And they did, and the entire company. Would meet after rehearsals and we'd sit in a wine bar running our lines Brilliant. every night. Yeah. And by the time I got to do the by the time I got to the first night, I really knew my words. I really knew it.
0: Makes and, a um, huge difference, doesn't yeah. it? Well, yeah. But I agree with you—the camaraderie and the family element that grows within theatre. There's nothing like it. You don't get that in TV. You don't get it in film, really, because it's shorter and and people come and go. But in theatre, yeah, theater, doing a
1: show for a long for two years or for, even for. 16 weeks you've done six weeks of five weeks of rehearsal if you're lucky and then you get 16 weeks we did we did did 16 weeks in west yorkshire we did six weeks on tour and then we ran in the west end so we we really knew each other well and we had each other's backs and if you forgot a line somebody would somebody would help you on stage that's
0: what's amazing yeah it was great and mostly the audience don't know what happens you think it's huge
1: doesn't it feel like a long time when you forget your lines Oh I feel like it's hours. Oh, God, <laughs> lightning come down from the sky and kill me now. I'm never going to remember this next bit. And then somebody just gives you a nudge and then you're off again, you know. <laughs> Amazing.
0: How many years later you were asked to go to the National Theatre by D- the lovely Dominic Cook, who's a yes, mutual friend? a
1: couple of years later. Dom- I love Dominic Cook. not and, um, like, and
0: he's so talented.
1: But I, I, I did read for him. I went to you know, I went to, um, it was at the Royal Court and I, I went to the, a little room around the back there and um, I read for him and he was so lovely. He's so we went sweet. through the text and um, we worked through the text every week for, you know, we did a couple of hours every week. And then what was great was I walked into rehearsals at the National, huge rehearsal room. I mean, nothing like the experience with the Northern Broadsides. I mean, this room was like, you could, you could have housed a family of 90 in this room. And we, we read through the play And then we started doing movement work and we started doing exercise. We didn't really do the text for a really long time. And Dominic was this austere, quite grown-up man who was watching the whole thing on fire because there were like 60 people in the cast of something ridiculous. And it was like a massive army being marshaled to do this play. And, um, And then we started to have sitting around the table talking about the text. And that was where Dominic really, really, really came into his own for me I just saw another side of Dominic which was very strict he really knows his stuff he wants to know exactly what these words mean and he wouldn't let you move on until you'd explain to him exactly what that speech meant and I learned so much from him and it was great to work with Michelle Terry and Claudia Blakely and people Mm. like that and as and once again you know we were a squad you know by the time we got to the end of that we were all saying, well, "What, what, what play do you want us to do next?"
0: <laughs> yeah, and also being being at the National Theatre must. I mean, I again, I haven't, but Lee, my husband, who you know very well, he's played the National, and like it a is a marvellous man, a marvellous man, darling. He, yeah, he the, sends his the, love, by the way. But I, said, um, I
1: loved him. I I loved it. I loved it there. It was a massive honour, yeah. and I'd love to go back. I was supposed to go back and do a, a one man show about Richard Pryor, but it didn't work out for copyright reasons. But um, there's things afoot. I, I, oh, I would good. really love to go back.
0: I bet you will. The other thing you did that I, I did see, I didn't see comedy of errors, sadly. I don't think I was in the country, but I, I did. Can do it for you now. Oh, will you do it for me now? Have you got time? <laughs> <laughs> the, go the thing I did see, and you were bloody brilliant, was in Fences. Oh, thank August, you. Well, you were amazing.
1: August Wilson is um, like CNN for black people in America. He's the guy... <laughs> It's un- unbelievable. He writes the things that everybody black is thinking, and then he puts it on a Broadway stage. So you get all these very, very smart, predominantly white audiences going, Oh, okay, they think this about us. <laughs> let's, ch- let's change our ways. You know, August Wilson is very deep, very smart, and he's passed away. But yeah. when he speaks, America listens. And the plays are incredibly moving, they speak to the black experience. They talk about poverty. They speak about discrimination. They speak about trying to get a leg up in society. And fences is about a dad trying to protect his family and thinking he's doing the right thing, but actually doing lots of wrong things. And it was incredibly powerful.
0: It was pa- inc- well, as an audience member, it was you were you were mind blowing. It was my it was I, it's one of my mem- lovely memories of a great theatrical experience thank you you were brilliant you now we've got to talk about because I did it after you but you went to the palace yes I did well tell me about your experience you're a dame I'm a dame darling marvellous you're a sir darling
1: I'm a to I
0: mean, get me from Neeson, you from Dudley I, love, a lot
1: of, <laughs> I mean there's a lot of politics around the royal family and and, and these honors and there's my thing about it was that I wanted to do it because my mom would have loved it. That's the oh, reason. That's the reason I, the reason I did it. My mum
0: would. I know. When
1: I, when I, did, I just remembered, because I got you know, I rang all my friends and said, "Should I take this or not?" And I expected, because quite a lot of socialists and left-wing people and things, and I expected them to go, "No, you can't do that." Blah blah, blah, blah. colonialism. Blah, blah blah. But everybody, even the really lefty one, said, "Yeah, you should do that. Your mum would have loved it." Yeah. <laughs> so I went, okay, and I went because I just. Every step of the way, I imagine my mom in a very wide brimmed hat sitting there eating toffees and going, yes, that's my son. Go on. get her a cr- kiss. She won't <laughs> mind. So, uh, or, it was, or crunching
0: ice. It was
1: brilliant. Or <laughs> with the hot pepper sitting there, you know, go
0: on then. You
1: want a hot pepper? So I, I just thought it was a fantastic, <laughs> and it was a really good day. And we all went. My daughter was there, and Lisa was there, and my uh... sister was there. We all went. And then afterwards, we went and had a big meal, and... More friends came to the meal, and I got a bit drunk, and um, I kept saying "King of the North" like Game of Thrones because yeah. I, I had a, somebody gave me a plastic crown, and we had a really really good day. <laughs> it was a fantastic day out, and it was lovely, really lovely.
0: Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed. I really. What was your day it? like? It was it was wonderful. I mean, my my elder Lee came, and and Carly and Ace, my stepson came, and they really only they say you can only take three people, and my my mum and dad aren't around, which is a shame. But my elder sister, who was like a second mum to me because she's 15 years older, that I thought yeah. oh, I'd be so lovely for my sisters to come. So I mentioned it to this lovely lady I've been talking to who, who arranges everything. And she said, Well, how many sisters have you got? And I said, Two. She said, I think we can sneak them in. And my elder sister, Shirley, cried. From the moment she arrived at Buckingham <laughs> Palace all through the ceremony until we got to lunch, she just cried. I'm uh, so happy I took them. And I I loved it. I ha- things you, you, important. You, you got the Queen, didn't you?
1: Yeah, the Queen was there, yeah.
0: Lovely. Did you get the sword?
1: I got two taps. I was literally assaulted by an old lady with a bladed weapon. <laughs> and I then, have
0: I have Prince Charles. Uh, terribly uh, he, nice. He
1: always says, Ah, oh, the man himself, Prince Charles. It's a nice guy, but it was it was a lovely day, yeah, and it was it really funny because um, on the day, um, ITV did a really nice thing about it. Lenny Henry has been knighted today, but they showed a picture of Ainsley Harriet. and the, the guy, the, the the guy who runs ITV, rang me and said, Lenny, I'm I'm so sorry, uh, there's been a terrible mistake. Uh, uh, don't worry, we'll fix it for news at ten. We'll fix it for news at six. Don't worry. I
0: said, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. That's unbelievable. Hilarious. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So um I know you've been writing a book.
1: Yes, I have written a book and I've been commissioned by Faber Faber to do a follow-up.
0: Oh, lovely. Um,
1: the first book's called Who Am I Again? And it's it's basically from being born in Britain to going on new phases and a little bit after that. But it stops. And everybody said, why do you stop there? Why do you stop when you're 18? And I go, because it would have taken me a really long time to write up to present day. I also didn't really want to write about my marriage and, and stuff because I respect my, my ex-wife and my kid and my family yeah, and everything. I agree. And I think it's sort of wrong to do that stuff. So I kind of felt like if I was to write a second book, it's going to be a career retrospective and it's going to be about craft and it's called rising to the rising to the surface. Because I was I always think of the business as being, and you must have had this of feeling like you've been chucked into the deep end, <laughs> holding a giant boulder <laughs> and having to learn how to swim. Do you remember do you remember at school when you had to swim in your pajamas and they'd throw a brick <laughs> and you had to go and get it?
0: Yeah, because we both did it in the public. Often people, if they don't get instant fame, like you did and I did, they kind of can learn. As they go along. Yeah, as they go along. We were thrown into... And in a way, it's even more difficult because everything you do is looked at, is judged, is... And we were so... I mean, you were 15, I was 16. It was, I mean...
1: It must have been really weird. And also, I'm glad I didn't know then what I know now because I think I would have been so scared. The the predatory behaviour of strangers, people... Who manipulate you and try and get things out of you. And I'm sure that stuff happened to me anyway, but I didn't know. I didn't know no. it was happening. You know, I was taken out, I was put into very adult situations that I probably shouldn't have been in, clubs, lots of smoking. You know, I was very young and I was very naive. And to have survived it,
0: Yeah,
1: is a is a major feat. I often you know, I do pat, pat myself on the back for getting through that because yeah,
0: me too. a lot
1: of us did not survive it.
0: I know. And and as you know, that period in the late 60s was, you know, very druggy, And I was so straight because, you know, I, <laughs> when I used to go to America to model for American Vogue at the airport, because I'd come in from England with my suitcases, I'd be taken into and because I was who I was, they just presumed, oh well she's part of the Beatles and the song, she must yeah. have drugs. And I'd be at the airport for hours going them going through all my clothes. And that's I was tea. so stressed. Pardon.
1: <laughs> that's tea. Those are tea bags.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's tea it was. <laughs> mm. I, just before you go, because I know you've got to rush off, and it's been a dream talking to you. It's
1: been lovely talking to you.
0: Just tell me a little bit about comic relief and and how that all came about in like ten seconds because it's been amazing part of our lives.
1: Well, it's very kind of you to talk about it. Comic mm-hmm. relief was started by Richard Curtis for and a funeral black advocate of Yeah. um <laughs> he went to he went to Kenya to look at the work that had been going on there since live aid and you know. It was in a room where there was people dying. Then he went in a room where half the people were dead. Then he went in a room where people might survive. And he said, what can we do to help? And he said, what do you do? He said, I'm a comedy writer. He said, we're booking off back to Britain. We need medical supplies, blankets, cars, ambulances. Whatever you can do. So Richard came back and organised this thing called A Night of Comic Relief at the Shaftesbury Theatre. And he asked me to be in it. So that was my first involvement with it. And I, I, I loved the night. And it was the night when... The young ones sang with Cliff, and I did Juliet, Juliet, Juliet with Frank Bruno and Theophilus <laughs> P. Wild, the Beast, and Kate Bush was on, and it was a brilliant night, and it raised quite a lot of money. the The, um, the televised program raised a couple of million quid. There was a party at my house, and I'm the one who said it should be a night on the telly. That's where I come into it. I said it should be on the telly, and it should be all night, and it should be all of us doing our favourite things. Brilliant. And Richard said that's brilliant. We should do that, and then. He put together a night of comic relief, the first red nose day, and the first one raised 15 million quid. And, uh, and uh, two years ago, three years ago, we announced that since 1988, we've raised over a billion pounds for charities wow. in, in the third world and in the UK. And the UK charities are really important because I'm always getting cabs and geese to go, How comes you send all that money to Africa? And what about the UK? And we started off raising money in the UK, we you know, we always. Gave money to charities in the UK. Wherever you are in the UK, Comic Relief is there raising money for that. Wherever brilliant. you are, so we're really proud of that. And I think you should
0: be bloody proud. It's amazing. Well,
1: Richard, Richard is brilliant and a genius, and he is my captain. My captain. So whatever he does, I follow.
0: Uh, well, he's also one of the loveliest men in the world, isn't he? He's very, very I love nice. Richard and lovely Emma. Anyway, I'm going to let you go because I know you're really, really busy. Thank you for joining me for tea.
1: What a delight to talk to you. Please say hi to your old man. I will. I love all those books. I want to come to your house and look at all your books. And um, thank you for mentioning my book. And there's a new one coming out soon. This is, It's going to come out in paperback soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Who Am I Again?, But um, they'll be at part two, which is called Rising to the Surface. Excellent. And it'll be be in the next year or so. Brilliant. Lovely to talk to you, Twins. Well, I hope
0: we can see you and hug you very, very soon.
1: I'd love that. But in the meantime, here's a big elbow bump for you. (laughs) See you soon.
0: Love you. Bye. That was so much fun. I love Lenny. He's brilliant. So don't forget to check out his new book, Who Am I Again? And I think it's coming out in paperback soon as well. And then look out for the new one next year. He never stops that, man. (laughs) See you soon. Bye. If you've enjoyed listening to Tea with Twiggy, please take a moment to give us a lovely five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find the show. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast so you auto-magically get the next episodes for free. And do tell all your friends and family about it, too. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy, or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye.